Hello, good evening and good day to all of you. Welcome to the latest episode of the Ask Abhijit Show. I hope you are all doing very well. And today we are going to deal with uh, questions that you have asked in the comments. We're going to deal with questions about geopolitics and history and maybe some other things, uh, time permitting. So uh, before we get into that, as always, let us see who are present with us this fine day or evening or night, wherever you are. Let's see. I can see Paresh, Akai, Abhay, Amar, Yugantar, Jatin, Devanshu, Atharva, Sanat, Jaydikshit, Siddharth, Singh, Mahida, Arnab, Uday, Shivansh, Devashish, Official RP, Kuhu, Telang, Cauldron, Drowner, The Landmark, Meghal, Tadda, Sivar, Pranay, Anurag, Creator, Hacker, Entress, Anahita, Manohar, Hemant, Uchiha, Itachi, Yogesh, Ojas, Ishan, Uncovered, Sasuke, Uchiha, Heidi, Durga, Tomojit, Ankit, Meet, Dave, who else? Probal, Kiran, Creative Planet, Kushbu, Sun, Sumit, Kelly, Didi, Harbi on Wheels, Sri Harsha, Benam, Sartak, Edit, Abhishek, Rohan, Vladimir Adityanath, Hindu Sher Putin, Varinder Chandan, Vanos, Harsh, Amar, and Soulful Music in Paras, Lalit, Priyansh, My Lord, Rushab, Vanos, Rahul, A.K. Hari Priya, Nilesh, and a whole lot of other people. All of other people. All right, all right. So let's get into the questions. With that said, good evening, good day, all of you, once again. Okay, what are the questions that we have? What are the comments and the questions? Let's see. Um, okay. <coughs> Excuse me. Excuse me. So the, this is a, not a question. This is a comment by Gunit. Uh, I want to express my immense gratification for all, the, for all the work you do to inform us about the reality of our world. I recently saw your video on Columbus and how he used the Native Americans while still being proclaimed in history. Later on, I did some of my own research and found that what you said was absolutely right, word for word. This is the first time I have corroborated what you said and my eyes were open. Thank you. Well, thank you, sir, for... Uh, for stating this. So that's the thing, right? My hope is that all of you will do some fact checking of your own, which will uh, which will lead you to the what, whatever the truth is, right? Uh, see, I in every live stream, what I do is I take a bunch of comments or questions that I believe will give you the most uh, the most value if if I answer that. And I don't do any preparation, any rehearsal of how to answer. I don't col collect all the uh, references and evidence. I just come and answer the questions that's what i do and i it's my hope that all of you or at least some of you will go ahead and fact fact check what i'm saying because that's how you learn so i can show you the direction but you need to then take some steps to learn some more i cannot spoon feed everybody with references and sources for everything I, I with every statement i make and every question i answer i hope that uh, you will do that that's how you learn that's how you actually learn uh, how to do fact checking that's how you learn how to do research and that's how you learn more history and, and more about the world so that's so it's good to see gurit doing this he has actually gone ahead and fact checked what i said and it turned out that what i said was correct so i hope that all of you will also do that that's how you will all learn my hope is that you will all learn not just the information that I'm offering you, but you will learn how to learn and learn how to fact check and learn how to do research. So please go ahead and do that. Please do that. Okay. Okay, this is a, 
Okay, Ramakrishna says, you said on Twitter that we are entering the most dangerous phase of the Ukraine-Russia conflict. What did you mean by that? Sarthak says, please tell how Russia and Vladimir Putin and uh, plan to end their conflict. What is their main objective? What was their main goal for such a heavy conflict? And Kostub says, now we know Russia annexed some parts of Ukraine. So, we, so can we assume now that the war will be over soon? Right. Uh, so let's take the third question first. Russia has indeed uh, annexed about a fifth of Ukraine, the, the nation that used to be known as Ukraine, right? About a fifth of the, of the territory has been annexed by Russia. Let's take a look at what those territories are and let's go to the map. Where's the map? Here is the map. Where is Ukraine? So uh, some time ago, a few years ago, Russia took uh, the uh, peninsula of Crimea. So that's already uh, done. Now, uh, Russia, so this is Ukraine, this nation here, the, the second largest nation in Europe, apart from Russia, after Russia. So Russia has uh, annexed about a fifth of the territory of this nation, right? The eastern part and the southern part. Some parts of this uh, southern region are still under Ukrainian administration, but about a fifth of the nation has been now uh, formally annexed by Vladimir Putin. So that is done. Uh, so can we now assume that the war will be over because Russia has done this and now the conflict will be over? Well, unfortunately, the conflict un is, is most likely far from over. So that brings us to the second question. Sarthak, uh, how, do they, how does Vladimir Putin plan to end the conflict? What was the main objective? What was the main goal for this conflict? Right. So you end a conflict or you work towards an ending of the conflict once you have achieved your objectives, your military objectives, your strategic objectives, and your political objectives, right? Your, your geopolitical, geostrategic objectives. So what did Vladimir Putin say, say in his statement when he announced that he was uh, ordering a special operation in Ukraine, which ended up triggering the Ukraine conflict? He said that he want his objective is to demilitarize and denazify Ukraine. So denazification, de it's very simple, very straightforward. The U Ukrainians have this Azov division, Azov brigade or whatever they call it. And they consider uh, various war criminals of the Second World War era to be their national heroes, people like individuals like Stefan Bandera. And Nazism, uh, support for Nazism, glorification of Nazism, neo-Nazi sentiment is pretty much widespread among the Ukrainian population in the military, in the government. Uh, that guy, what's his name? Zelensky. Uh, I think he even brought a neo-Nazi in one of his uh, in, in one of his uh, interactions, you know, virtual interactions with some with uh, with I don't know, was it the UN? Was it Israel? I'm not sure. That's the kind of thing he did. So Putin said that he wants to denazify Ukraine. That's one of the principal objectives. Now, has Ukraine been denazified? Uh, far from it. Ukraine is not denazified. And has the Ukraine been demilitarized? Ukraine is not de demilitarized. The Ukrainian tank force is more or less gone. Ukraine is now depending on, on handouts, on charity from the West, from NATO and other, other European nations who are doing this at the behest of the big uh, puppet master, the US. So uh, aid is flowing into Ukraine. Uh, weapons are flowing into Ukraine from the West. Yeah, And as long as this continues happening, there is no end to the conflict. And Ukraine is definitely not demilitarized. Right. So, yeah. So uh, Mr. Putin has not achieved his objectives. Yes, he has certainly secured the Donbass region and whatever other regions of interest were for him. The places where you have a Russian speaking majority. Right. So he has reintegrated those regions with Russia. But the 
larger objectives are not yet achieved. Ukraine is not demilitarized. It's, a, it's still a major threat to Russia mm-hmm. as long as the West keeps on uh, funneling arms and other kinds of support into the Ukrainian military. And obviously, Ukraine is not denazified yet. So we are nowhere close to the end of the conflict, right? And now, obviously, there's the energy crisis and food crisis that's going on in the world, and especially in Europe. Europe was completely, to a very large extent, dependent on Russian energy, on Russian Russian gas. And now it seems like that's not going to happen. A significant portion of the Nord Stream pipeline has been blown up by whoever, yeah? It could be this this side or that side. We don't quite know who has done it. Nobody has claimed responsibility. It could be NATO, could be the Americans, could even be the Russians for for a variety of reasons. So, uh, so that's a problem. There is still a, 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 one of the portions of the pipeline that still seems to be functional. So there could be gas flowing in from there if uh, the the two sides can work things out. But there's this massive energy crisis. Winter is coming, like I said. Winter is coming. It's going to be a very cold and harsh winter in Europe. The energy prices are surging. They're becoming really expensive. There is energy rationing in, in various parts of Europe. It's going to be a difficult winter for the civilian population of Europe. So I, I really feel sorry for them. But yes, that's how war is waged when the entirety of Western Europe is arrayed up against Russia and they're aiding Ukraine in the war effort against Russia, the Russians will use all means at their disposal to pressurize the West, NATO, the EU, Europe, all of that, the United States. So yes, winter is coming and Europe is going to be under an extreme amount of stress. Um, They're now going to be forced to buy American energy supplies, petroleum products, etc. at very high prices, yeah, exorbitant prices. So that, that's where they find themselves. Now, why did I say that we are entering the most dangerous phase of the Ukraine-Russia conflict? Why, why did I say that? So, the reason I said, this, said that is this. Russia has now officially integrated about a fifth of Ukraine with the Russian Federation. So that territory, let's go back to the map, yeah? Yeah. Uh, so that territory is now officially part of Russia. That's what uh, Mr. Putin has done. Uh, the eastern part of Ukraine and the and parts of the south of Ukraine, right? Around the Azov Sea and, and all that. And Crimea is obviously part of that. So now, if the Ukrainian military attempts to retake those regions, then the problem for them is that these regions now fall under the Russian nuclear umbrella. Any attempt to uh, to uh, divest Russia of any of its territory can be met with nuclear retaliation. Russia does not consider its territory something that you can barter away a few pieces here, a few pieces there. Right? If you look at the history of India since 1947, India under various uh, weak need regimes has been willing to give away parts of its territory to Pakistan first of all and then to China. Right, and there was no real retaliation when it came to such when it came to Pakistan biting away at, at parts of Jammu and Kashmir or China taking off Aksai uh, Chin and other parts of Indian territory. There was no real, there were no real consequences for China and for Pakistan for these actions. When it comes to Russia, Russia will not tolerate an inch of its territory going to anybody else. Somebody tries to do that, they're gonna be met with extreme retaliation, and as a last ditch attempt. Russia could even use the nuclear option. So if the US wants to provoke nuclear war, then they could order the Ukrainian military to try and retake 
the territories that Russia has annexed. And they could uh, send in arms and ammunition and all that. And if the Ukrainian army is on the verge of succeeding, Russia may be forced as a last-ditch resort to, resort, to, to use tactical nuclear weapons, battlefield nukes. So there's a difference between tactical nukes and strategic nukes. Tactical nukes are low-yield nuclear weapons uh, in the kiloton range, you know, the Hiroshima bomb or Nagasaki bomb, or maybe even smaller than that in its output. A strategic nuke is in the megatons range, 1 megaton, 10 megatons. The largest ever bomb was a Tsar bomb the 50 megatons of, of TNT. So those are strategic nukes. Those are ones, the, the nukes you deploy and you and you deliver using ballistic missiles, typically, typically ballistic missiles. Tactical nukes are those you use in battlefields. It's never been done. But if the if the US wants to uh, escalate things and uh, make uh, and make it uh, appear like the Russians are the bad guys again, then they could force the Russians to use tactical nukes on the battlefield. And they could do that by ordering Ukraine to uh, try and retake Russian territory, uh, Russian annexed territory. And if they supply enough arms, ammunition, all that, the Ukrainians may even perhaps be capable of doing that. Perhaps, you know, uh, probably not, but they could try it. So whoever strikes the first blow is always portrayed as the bad guy. In any relationship, let's say you you have a, hyp a hypothetical couple, okay? And one, um, a man and a woman, let's say, right? That sort of couple. And let's say it's an abusive relationship. One of these two people, either the man or the woman, has been psychologically, emotionally, mentally abusing the other person for a decade. And after a decade, finally, the other partner lashes out and, and uses physical violence. Well, no one's going to look at the fact that the other person has been using psychological, mental and other violence on the person for 10 years. But the person who strikes the first blow is the villain. Similarly, in Ukraine, we know what happened. The Americans had been expanding eastwards slowly, 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 step by step. NATO has been doing this. And eventually, they crossed Russia's red lines and Russia was forced to resort to a military campaign. So they fired the first shot. So now they are the ones who are made to look bad. Similarly, if you want to make them look even worse, you force them to use battlefield nukes. So yeah, we could be entering this sort of scenario. And that's why I said we are now entering the most dangerous phase of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. And you know, the Western media is now trying to paint a picture of, of nuclear war, right? I mean, uh, I even read uh, an article somewhere which said that a small local uh, nuclear conflict, nuclear war, could even uh, reverse global warming. So they are trying to portray it as something that is that could have long-term beneficial effects. So it looks like they are trying to prepare the world mentally for the possibility of a nuclear conflict. And once you start a nuclear conflict, you know you don't know where it's going to go. You know, uh, there are lots of actors involved in this. There are there are American nukes all over you all over Europe. The Turks on Turkish territory, on, on Dutch territory, most likely in some other nations as well. So that you once you cross that threshold, the nuclear threshold, God knows where you're going to take the world. So that's why I said we are entering the most dangerous phase of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. The Americans, uh, they're going to use Ukraine until they're going to they're going to use Ukraine until the last Ukrainian soldier is standing. And the objective is to. Uh, is to weaken Russia, hopefully balkanize Russia, right? Um, they seem to regard right now Russia as the bigger threat than China. And uh, there are reasons why, why they think so, and they may be right about this right now. So that's why, uh, that's why I think we are entering the most dangerous phase of this conflict. Russia has annexed territories, 
if the Americans force the Ukrainians or order the Ukrainians to try and take that back, we could even see nuclear conflict. We don't want to see that. But hey, who knows what uh, the superpower wants? So that's why I said that. Now let's let's look at it. Look at this further. Okay, Gursimrat Singh Rasya says, will Putin actually use nuclear weapons in a crucial situation? Stuti says, as you are aware, Ukraine has blasted the Crimea bridge. Do you think after this incident, Russia will use a tactical nuke to retaliate? And Ruturaj says, do you think that now Russia will drop a tactical nuke on Ukraine? What will be the consequences worldwide if that happens? Okay, so uh, do I think Vladimir Putin will actually use nuclear weapons in a crucial situation? I think when you def- we have to define what crucial is. If certain red lines are crossed, Vladimir Putin will indeed, I believe, use nuclear weapons. He will not straight away use strategic nukes. He will uh, try to well use the use the uh, smallest nukes, uh, tactical nukes. But yeah, if certain red lines are crossed, he will definitely use nuclear weapons. That's what I believe. Right uh, now, Stuti's question is that Ukraine has uh, destroyed the Crimea bridge. Well. Um, the entire bridge has not been destroyed. Let's take a look at where that is. Yes, uh, the Crimea bridge. I think I covered this yesterday, but let's take a look at it again. So this peninsula, uh, okay, we're looking at Ukraine. We're looking at Eastern Europe, the Black Sea, north of the Black Sea. We have Ukraine and uh, you also have Russia over here and so on and so forth. The eastern part is Russia. This peninsula is called the Crimean Peninsula. It's been, you've seen military activity there, wars there uh, going back uh, centuries, yes the 1850s around there the crimean conflict and so on and there's this bridge here which connects the russian mainland to the uh, crimean peninsula so uh, if this will ever load yes here we are so this is the bridge now so uh, now i think about 24 hours or so ago there was a truck bomb explosion on this bridge yes and uh, a portion of this bridge has been uh, significantly damaged, but the Russians are working very rapidly to repair and restore the, the the functionality of the bridge, right? But yes, this is a major provocation, and we don't know who has done it. Maybe uh, maybe it's Ukraine. Most likely, it's Ukraine. But Ukraine obviously is a proxy of NATO. So yeah, that's what's happened. So the question is, will Russia use a tactical nuke to retaliate? I believe Russia will most likely retaliate in some form, in some way, at a time and a place of their choosing. That's that's how things typically go. I don't think they will use a tactical nuke to retaliate to this provocation, to this incident. They will. They have a wide array of tools at, at their disposal, in their toolkit, and they could use anything. They could use a, a similar kind of a thing, maybe, you know... A, car bomb truck i don't i'm not speculating i have no idea what they could use they could use something similar they could use a cyber attack they could use a conventional attack uh, or something like that i don't think they will use tactical nukes it doesn't make any sense you don't respond to conventional uh, to a conventional attack with a nuclear attack you don't do that right uh, so i don't think russia will use a tactical nuke to retaliate to this provocation but they will certainly respond in some form Maybe disproportionate force, maybe proportionate force. We don't know yet, but let's let's see how things unfold. So we are now entering dangerous territory. And Ruturaj also says, do you think Russia will drop a tactical nuke and so on? What are the consequences? Um, so Russia will not most likely use tactical nukes. So in what circumstances will Russia resort to using nuclear weapons? It's very clear. If Russia's territorial integrity is threatened, then Russia most likely will not hesitate to resort to the use of tactical nuclear weapons. And if that doesn't work, 
then they will escalate further by maybe using more powerful nuclear weapons russia has the largest nuclear arsenal in the world you don't want to poke the bear you don't want to do that and you do that you, god knows where things will go right so what are the consequences worldwide if this happens well uh, i'm not sure what the consequences are but nothing good nothing good if there is the use of nuclear weapons then that actually opens up a whole lot of possibilities that would give the americans the pretext the excuse to themselves use nukes against russia but if they do that then that's going to invite a response a further response from russia and if they use nukes against russia on russian territory the russians will have no option but to use nukes against the the united states on us territory well that is nuclear armageddon once that starts there is no stopping it so we do not want to ever see nukes used again the last time it ha- it happened was in 1945 when the americans tested two nuclear devices on the japanese population in the cities of hiroshima and nagasaki we don't ever want to see such a horrific war crime happen again so i hope that some sense will prevail uh, all kinds of nonsense is being printed right now in the western media kind of uh, preparing the public for uh, some kind of nuclear exchange we don't want to see that so uh, yeah so my uh, my understanding is very clear that there are certain very clear red lines that russia has if those red lines are breached they will definitely use nuclear weapons unless and if those red lines are not breached they will not use nukes the red line is russian territorial integrity somebody tries to tamper with that somebody tries to uh, balkanize russia or to break away any portion of russian territory the russians most likely could use nuclear weapons right so yeah if you want to make russia uh, to to force russia to use nuclear weapons all you have to do if you're nato is arm the arm the ukrainians enough so that they can go and attack russian territory russian held territory russian annexed territory whatever it is and try and you know break some of it away that's the clear red line that uh, if you do that then the russians most likely will use nukes if they, if they have no other option so that's where we are samarth says what are your views on india supporting armenia with weapons against azerbaijan sending a message to turkey and pakistan can india form a trilateral alliance india armenia and israel good question so yes one uh, we do hear the report that india is uh, going to india has uh, uh, inked an agreement or india has agreed to sell about a quarter of a million dollars worth a quarter of a billion dollars worth of weapons weapon systems etc arms ammunition whatever it is to armenia in their conflict against azerbaijan right so yeah so india is supporting armenia india is not supporting azerbaijan now azerbaijan is a proxy of turkey let's take a look at the map to understand what is happening there because the map is our best friend uh, i'm sure you've heard that somewhere before so where is the map let's take a look at where this is you know where india is yes you do let's go westwards pakistan afghanistan iran 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 and then you have the caucasus region uh, you have the the caspian sea and you have the black sea and in between you have the caucasus region kavkaz that's what the russians call it so over here you have iran we know we all know iran iran is it is our neighboring nation there is temporarily a temporary a temporary state a temporary nation between us but iran is our neighboring country west of iran north west of iran you have azerbaijan and armenia uh, 
and then to the west of Armenia, you have Turkey. So what's going on here? You look at the map. So this is Armenia, right? Now, if you look at this little place over here, south of Armenia, if you type, if you if you click there, it says Azerbaijan. So this territory has been taken over by Azerbaijan with the help of Turkey, right? So if you click very close to the border, to the, to the so-called border here, it says Azerbaijan. If you click on the Armenian-held territory over here, it says Asia. So apparently Google seems to be supporting uh, Azerbaijan in its claims that this is Azerbaijani territory and Arme not Armenian territory. Even if you click here, it says Asia, right? But if you click over here, it says uh, it says unavailable. So yeah, there's there's some confusion going on here and Google seems to be playing certain games. Now, what is the deal? So Azerbaijan is the aggressor. They have been perpetrating all kinds of horrific atrocities on the Armenian people. We know the history of the Armenian genocide starting from the late 19th century all, all the way into the first quarter of the 20th century. Yeah, multiple waves of genocide against the Armenians done by the Turks. The Turks hate it when you speak about this. But on the other hand, they don't they, they waste no opportunity to remind the Armenians, Armenians of what they did to them. So they don't want it to be recognized officially, the Turks, that they did a genocide against the Armenians. But they, their politicians keep on making statements and reminding the Armenians that, you know, this is what we did to you and we could do it again. So behave. Right. So India is supporting Armenia. Now, the question is, who is India sending a message to Turkey and Pakistan? So first of all, please understand, Pakistan is an, a non-entity. It is a proxy state of the US and China. There is no point sending a message to Pakistan. Pakistan is is some is like with the greatest of respect to the Pakistani people. I have nothing against them, but Pakistan is a dog for hire. It's an attack dog for hire. That's what it is. It's it's a goon for hire. There is no point sending a message to someone's goon. You have to send a message to the master. So to whom is India sending a message? Well, uh, the question is, can India form, form a trilateral alliance with India, Armenia and Israel? First of all, Armenia is not a powerful nation. There's no point forming an alliance with a nation that is, is on the verge of catastrophe. One can support such a nation, but an alliance is done between more or less equals, right? Uh, now, the question is Israel, isn't it, my dear friends? Israel, are you all aware of the fact that Israel is supporting Azerbaijan in this conflict? Are you aware of this fact? India has been, uh, Israel has been su uh, uh, supplying drones, you know, those loitering munitions, etc., to the Azerbaijanis in their war against Armenia. Isn't it strange that uh, this Turkish proxy, Azerbaijan, is being supported by the Israelis? And the Israelis are, are essentially uh, betting on and, and investing in the destruction of this wonderful ancient nation, Armenia. So why what's happening here? Why is Israel supporting Azerbaijan? Yeah, and why is India supporting Armenia? What's happening here? Aren't India and Israel the best of friends, according to most people? What's happening here? So let me answer what's happening here. It's it's all about geography. It is all about geography. That's what geopolitics is about. You cannot understand geopolitics unless you see the map and understand what's going on here. And this is also a lesson for my fellow YouTubers who may be watching this. <laughs> geopolitics is nowadays a big cottage industry in India. Okay, here's the lesson. Let's look at the geography to understand the geopolitics. We have this nation here, Iran. Okay, Iran is a sworn enemy of the United States. We know this. 
to the north we have russia russia is a sworn enemy of the united states the americans want to destroy iran they want to destroy russia we know that very well who is israel's number one ally it's the united states the united states is israel's number one ally israel exists because of the us without us support israel would not exist understand that turkey is a nato member turkey has us nukes on its territory azerbaijan is turkey's proxy by extension azerbaijan is a nato proxy georgia is is desperate to enter nato they 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 are against russia so here is the geography all right ukraine is a nato proxy all these nations in western europe are nato are essentially us vassal states turkey is a us vassal state with a few imperial ambitions of its own right the us wants what does the us want the us wants a bridge between turkey and azerbaijan so that it has clear unimpeded access to the caspian sea the problem is this little nation called armenia armenia is being supported by russia and the us doesn't like it and so what the us wants to do is to create a conflict here and destabilize not only the entire region this the caucasus region but also destabilize iran and russia hopefully annihilate armenia and create a pan turan corridor a turkish corridor between turkey and azerbaijan and you know they also have nations like turkmenistan which you know could actually be bought out by the americans if the if the price is right or if the situation is right so that's what's going on here they are trying to once again you know uh, become a major player in this region they have moved out of afghanistan and they essentially moved out of central asia some time ago but now they are trying to create a corridor over here by by essentially uh, wiping armenia off the map and there are all kinds of horrific atrocities that are that are being perpetrated on armenia by the azerbaijanis yeah the standard standard turkic standard turkish brutalities uh if you if you not don't know about it well i recommend you don't read about it because it's it's stomach churning and uh, yeah there are all kinds of reports on social media including twitter i would recommend don't look at that anyway that's what's happening so india is supporting armenia india is not sending a message to turkey or to pakistan india is sending a bigger message to the united states that we're not going to support your nonsense here so essentially what we are witnessing now my dear friends is a complete realignment of the global order india is no longer in the us camp india is no longer in the us camp india will cooperate with the us if certain conditions are met those conditions are not being met all right the americans uh, are not are not concerned about what india wants so india is now supporting armenia it's a message to the united states israel is, is it's not that important unfortunately israel i mean uh, you could say israel to to put it to put it uh, to put it kindly is a junior partner of the united states i am not using the v word out of uh, deference to our israeli friends but yeah israel is the junior partner partner of the us israel does whatever the americans tell it to do israel's foreign policy is an extension of us foreign policy and israel serves a very important purpose for the us in the middle east region understand these things this is the geopolitical lesson right here so armenia is now being supported by india i expect iran will most likely support armenia and russia we know does support armenia right so this is the new emerging geopolitical realignment because the united states is hell bent on undermining india's national interest india is now going to support armenia in this matter 
and we are witnessing a complete glo- global realignment i'm telling you that this the, the decade of the 2020s is going to be a decade of very fast change very rapid change a complete realignment of the global order and a lot more is happening so this is what's happening over here so that's why india is supporting armenia with weapons against azerbaijan it's not a message to turkey or pakistan turkey is a nato member state right it's it's uh, it's trying to break free of complete nato domination yeah but it's still a nato member state turkey is playing you know a, a triangular kind of uh, thing they they are uh, trying to woo russia in certain aspects they're also trying to remain on the side of the us uh, and so on turkey has geopolitical ambitions of its own uh, mr erdogan wants to become wants to recreate the ottoman empire so uh, azerbaijan is there is their attack dog in this in this particular situation so whatever's happening is not a message to turkey or pakistan it's a message to nato to eu to the united states india cannot form a trilateral alliance between india armenia and israel armenia is not even strong enough to be an ally of india it could i mean we do sympathize with armenia and that's why we are helping them but it's not going to be an ally israel well israel is an extension of the us in in most intents and purposes right i i do wish them well i do hope that they can have an independent foreign policy someday right now it's not quite the case not quite the case okay sujith says does um will india and china go to war in 30 years and atharva says is a russia india china ric alliance possible okay so will india and china go to war in 30 years you know india and china could go to war next weekend or next month or next year or sometime in the next decade 30 years is too long a time horizon for india and china go to war going to war as india rises and as china stagnates the chinese may become desperate and look for you know and um, look look to give their people a reason to support to keep supporting the chinese communist party and whoever is is the chinese emperor at the time right now is mr xi jinping who is the de facto emperor of china china is not doing well anymore understand that like i said there is a complete realignment of the global geopolitics geopolitical system at work right now it's happening right now so what is happening what is happening it's all been triggered not by the ukraine conflict but something that happened a couple of years before that what happened 2 years ago what happened in late 2019 there was a virus that spread across the world right the corona virus we some people call it the, the wuhan virus the covid virus whatever you want to call it the wuhan corona virus the pandemic which uh, first the reports first came out in 2019 and then 2020 was a disaster 2021 was a disaster 2022 right now we were limping back to normalcy kind of and then ukraine happened the ukraine conflict uh, happened so what did the corona virus pandemic do whom did it hurt the most it it sent the whole world into a recession it it uh, rendered millions maybe billions of people jobless it destroyed economies it it caused all kinds of chaos worldwide in every nation in 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 the first world in in europe in the us also in china also in india lots of people suffered millions hundreds of millions of indians like they barely survived this kind of pandemic not because of the illness but because of the, the sh- shutting down of the economy it was a disaster worldwide india of course did much better than the other nations in supporting its, its population anyhow that's a whole different story so the coronavirus pandemic brought 
China ground it ground China down to a halt. The economy they showed they put out some some numbers that looked encouraging, but now we see that China is not doing well economically. The bigger problem it caused for China is the complete shutting down as more or less of the One Belt One Road OBOR initiative or the Belt and Road Initiative, the BRI. So what is the BRI thing, right? Uh, let's take a look at the OBOR and BRI and all that. Let's take a look at that. That was China's great bid for world domination. It was their great bid for superpower status. In 2008, the Chinese decided that now is the time, now is our time for for uh, trying to become a superpower. The, our time is now and we have to grab the chance. So they launched this One Belt, One Road initiative, which was supposed to connect China through Central Asia to Europe. Yeah, and it also had a, a maritime, uh, you know, the maritime Silk Road uh, component, which would connect China to all these other nations, including Africa. So they would get cheap resources, minerals, and all those things from Africa. Uh, they would use African labor, and they would also build a massive connectivity with the whole of Europe, and that would integrate China, China's economy with the European economy and other things. And that would be what leads China to becoming the number one economy in the world, and that would ensure that they become the superpower and the US declines, right? But, so that was the great hope, the great ambition of the Chinese. The coronavirus pandemic derailed that. It derailed that. All the work stopped in these regions. Then you had the Taliban thing which happened in Afghanistan. The Americans withdrew from Afghanistan. That uh, set the whole place for some time into chaos, right? There was a lot of instability there. So that also contributed to the slowing down, to the grinding to a halt of the OBOR thing, right? And now, we have the Ukraine conflict. So once again, this Eastern Europe region is completely paralyzed. You don't even see planes flying too, too, too much over, over the region. And now further, you have the energy crisis and the food crisis. These are these have been essentially created artificially. Yes, you blow up pipelines. You, uh, you try to impose uh, price caps on Russian petroleum products. You impose sanctions on Russia. You ensure that no food grains flow out of Ukraine and so on. It's going to cause a global energy crisis a global food crisis is who is it going to affect the most it, europe is going to suffer this winter we know that it's going to affect the global south even more the so-called third world africa is going to suffer africa is going to suffer and china seeks a great amount of resources minerals and other wealth from africa and cheap labor as well so that is not going to work so this has essentially derailed china's superpower ambitions Right? So that's one thing that's happened. The other thing the Chinese are hoping for is that as a consequence of the Ukraine conflict, which Mr. Putin started, well, he started, but he started it in retaliation. That's a whole different story. I've spoken about, spoken about it a long, many times. So China's great hope was that as a consequence of the enormous, massive US sanctions on Russia, Russia would have to come begging to China for help. And then Russia would become China's vassal state, a junior partner. And China could then impose very uh, one-sided uh, conditions on Russia and then re reduce Russia to another Africa. You know, use Russia for, for, for resources and cheap labor and all that and enrich itself at Russia's expense. So that would again boost China's superpower ambitions, even though the OBOR seems to be dead. So the Belt and Road interface is already like it's, it's uh, collapsed. But Russia could serve as the as the uh, counterweight to that. So China was hoping that Russia would become their vassal state and they could use Russia to enrich themselves and become a superpower. The problem is this. 
despite all the sanctions, Russia is thriving. First of all, they've done well with the ruble. They've uh, attached it to the price of gold. The ruble is at the gold standard now. So the ruble is doing well. It's in demand and all that. And secondly, as soon as the sanctions were imposed on Russia, they found they found an ally. That ally was India. India overnight in, increased its oil purchases from Russia 50-fold, 50 times. So that way, Russia did not have to depend on China, right? And once uh, the other thing that happened is that India revived the, the what is it called? The, the uh, North-South Transport Corridor between India, Iran, and Russia. Let's take a look at that. NTSC, North-South Transport Corridor. What is that? Okay, a statutory warning as always. Wikipedia is not a reliable uh, source of information, but just for convenience sake, I'm putting this up over here. The International North-South Transport Corridor is a multimodal network of all these things between India and Russia. The starting point is Mumbai. One endpoint is Mumbai. The other endpoint is Moscow, right? It passes through Iran. It also passes through Azerbaijan and so on. So this is the thing. So because of this, because we have restarted this, it's going to again uh, act, act as a pressure release valve for Moscow, for Russia. So India is buying massive amounts of petroleum products from Russia, mainly crude oil, 50 times more than it was, it was doing. And India is restarting th this, this thing, which the Iranians essentially had stopped. Now Iran is also cooperating with India and Russia in this. So India ensured that Russia does not have to go begging to China. Russia is now standing on its own with the help of India and, and, and Iran. Yeah, that's what's happening. So India is not entirely broken, has not entirely broken off with the West. India is still part of the of the Quad. India is still part of various initiatives with the US, the I2U2 initiative. So India is now acting as, as a bridge between, between um, the East and the West. That's what's happening. And India is now emerging as a major major power because of all these uh, actions and all these decisions it is taking yes it is vitally important today for russia the existence of india so india is now whether you like it or not some people may disagree with me india is now a great power it's already become a great power but obviously th this is a very dangerous situation for india you know india uh, is still a reasonably small economy 3. Point whatever 3.6 trillion dollars gdp and our military might is also not that large it's it's something that's proportionate to the gdp we do have nukes which kind of helps us so that is the situation we find ourselves in russia is is not collapsing russia is not going to be balkanized russia has has enough uh, strength of its own and india is helping it out when it comes to the economy and all that so because of this, <laughs> the Chinese find themselves kind of sidelined. None of their hopes, aspirations have, have worked out for them. They are not going to become a superpower anytime soon. Their economy is crawling. Their belt and road inter inter interface initiative, whatever it is, 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 is dead in the water. They have not been able to turn Russia into a vassal state. Russia is strong. Russia is stronger than before. Yeah, Whatever you're, you're, you're hearing in the news, Please don't trust it. Don't trust the Western media and don't trust the Indian media, which is echoing the Western media. So this is where we are. India and Russia have emerged stronger out of it, but we have major threats now. Now, though, the US looks at India also essentially as, as an adversary. 
but yeah it was it, it it anyway looked at india as an adversary it, it simply wanted to use india for some time as a counterweight to china now all these things happened they are now focusing on russia because russia scares them more than china china is now no longer rising as as it would have or should have so that's where we are so we are seeing the belligerent response of the us they are trying to shake up the entire global economy they are they are printing uh, billions and trillions of dollars and they're raising interest rates which is destroying all the other economies the euro has crashed the 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 pound the british pound has crashed the yen has crashed india and china's currencies have gone down 10% so yeah they are trying to you know sow chaos in the world they have created this artificial fuel crisis and the food crisis so that's what we see so right now it looks like india russia china iran may have to band together in some way or the other but india and china can never ever be allies can never be allies at at best we could have some kind of arrangement of convenience like we have between russia and china today russia and china if you look at the map they can never be allies because they sh- share a long common border and a disputed border it may not be disputed right now but it's a it's a dormant dispute the chinese would like to reopen it whenever it it, it suits them uh yeah so russia and china share a very long border it's been a border on which they have fought they almost went to nuclear war once russia had decided to nuke the chinese and the americans saved the chinese so india and china also have this long undemarcated border we can consider the nepal border as also as the india border and so on so yeah india and china can never ever be allies we can never have a good relationship as long as tibet is in chinese hands but there could be a temporary uh, you know arrangement of convenience for some time as long as a bigger enemy threatens both uh so essentially whether some kind of arrangement between russia india and china happens or not iran will also be involved if it does happen so whether such an arrangement or some temporary alliance happens or not all depends on what action what course of action the united states takes if the united states uh, if the us does things that threaten all these nations at the same time then you could have these nations banding together coming together for some for some time uh, in order to uh, withstand the threat together yeah but if the us is smart enough they could play one nation off against the other and there are lots of uh, lots of tools they have in their toolkit yeah they are they are past masters at divide and rule the us is an extension you know it's a continuation of the british empire the british were renowned for their divide and rule uh, policies so yeah that's where we are Uh, is a uh, an alliance between russia china india possible most likely not but yeah if the us forces forces everyone's hand then you, these nations may come together along with iran which is a very strange assortment of bedfellows you know but yeah it could happen but uh, do not ever make the mistake of thinking that india and china can be friends or have good relationship uh, or have a good relationship as long as tibet is under temporary chinese occupation simply can't happen but yeah we could have some kind of alliance or or arrangement of convenience which would be temporary in nature okay this is a whole bunch of questions vishal alka manmat and a lot of other people ask this question vishal says why did india not vote against china at the unhrc alka says why does you india usually abstain at human rights resolutions at the unhrc china russia sri lanka venezuela etc significant one was abstention at a debate and so on at the xinjiang china yeah that thing and all that and manmat says india recently abstained from voting in the unsc motion against china's xinjiang region atrocities and minorities what's the reason india is trying to signal something to the us okay so 
when it comes to any geopolitical action which is like voting on some matter or something on in the un or not you don't vote based on principles you speak you know when you make statements you talk about principles mm-hmm. we believe in these principles and we uh, we believe in rules and we believe in all that but when you vote or when you make when you do some action it is always something that's going to maximize the benefit for you it has to serve your national interest values and all those things in uh, principles and all that that's that's only for show it's only for talking so when it comes to voting for or against something or f- abstaining on something you have to do a cost benefit analysis if i vote yes what do i gain from it and what do i lose if i do this if i vote no what do i gain and what do i lose and if i abstain what do i gain and what do i lose right so that's what the indian government does in the past it may not have done this but this government certainly does that everything is based only on serving the national interest and that's what it is so the indian government would have done a cost benefit analysis of all three scenarios voting for voting against and abstaining and it clearly decided that abstaining is the best course of action for india now we may not understand why because we don't have all the data that the indian government has the indian government has access to secret information to classified information they have i i expect they would have war gamed various scenarios for the future we just discussed whether india russia china iran can come together in the future for for whatever purpose for a temporary alliance or arrangement of convenience now that's what it is we also have to consider the the relative strengths of the two nations economic strength military strength and all that there's a whole range of factors and data that go into making a decision and based on all this the indian government decided that it it suits india's national interest the best to abstain from voting in this thing we will not vote for china or against china we will just stay out of it right this is not non alignment this is pro this is pro india this is this is being aligned to towards your own national interest now we may not understand why they've done it and we are not supposed to understand why they've done it all the information in the world is not available in the public domain there are secret considerations that are taken right mm-hmm. so so all i can tell you is that based on whatever the indian government calculated yeah the foreign ministry the prime maybe the prime minister maybe some other officials a lot of data would go into the into into the into considering this so based on all that based on the cost benefit analysis it was decided that it suits india's it serves india's national interest the most to simply stay out of this matter right so you know and we we indians tend to be very emotional about things oh minorities china is doing this and all that it doesn't matter what china is doing or not doing in let's say xinjiang or tibet or wherever else is not important right now the only thing that matters is india's long term national interest india's long term prosperity and security that's the only thing that matters so based on that based on those selfish considerations we have to make our decisions right and let's say we vote against china it it feels good that yeah we showed china their place in the world but think of what the second order third order 12th order uh effects of that could be you have to look, look at it from a 10 year perspective right so i am not sure what went into making this decision what factors what data points what considerations went into it but i 
trust this Indian government. I trust the foreign ministry. I trust the external affairs minister, the prime minister, and whatever they've done must be for India's national interest. So, so based on such such considerations, they would they would have made this decision. Okay, Santosh says Santosh, Samarth, and Harita. OPEC have decided to cut down oil production in a meeting held in Vietna. Vienna. Does this what does this mean to Europe? Having such a meeting at the heart of Europe, the winter is about to winter is coming, and all that. What can the Europe? What can Europe do or the US do to OPEC? What impact does it have on the Indian economy? Uh, Samarth also has a similar question. It seems like Saudi Arabia and Russia are working together to manage oil markets. What are your thoughts on this and what will the West do now? Will EU be forced to come at peace with Russia by the upcoming winter? Harita says, uh, what do you make of the current situation between the US and Saudi Arabia? Do you think Saudi Arabia is trying to break free of American control over their sovereignty? Mm, interesting questions. So yes, what's happened is that the OPEC uh, group got together, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, they got together and they decided to uh, cut down, reduce the production of oil by approximately 2%. The Americans had been exhorting them to do the opposite of that. They wanted the OPEC countries to increase oil production. But they have decided, the OPEC group has decided to cut down oil production by 2%. So they have gone against the wishes of the Americans. right? So what's going on here? So let's understand what's, what the background is. Um, so you had the COVID crisis, right? The two years that we all lost. Yeah, the whole world was locked down. During this time, there was a very significant decline in demand for oil. So oil became incredibly cheap. It became, at some point in time, I remember it, the price went to below zero. So they would actually <laughs> give you money to, to acquire oil. Uh, that's the whole different story. Let's not go there. But yeah, oil prices became really, really, really cheap during the COVID crisis. Then you had the Ukraine conflict. Then, then the COVID thing started, started going down and the oil prices started again rising somewhat. Then you had the Ukraine uh, special operation ordered by Mr. Putin, which sent oil prices skyrocketing. Oil prices really shot up. And during this time, Saudi Arabia became one of the uh, fastest growing economies in the world because of the high oil prices and high demand for oil. Then... Then you had a, a new wave of COVID in China because of which demand went down. And now the Europeans and the Americans are trying to put a price cap on the oil that they buy from Russia, which means you, the Russians cannot sell oil to them above a certain price. The Russians obviously will not uh, sell oil to anybody who insists on a price cap and all that. And now you have inflation, you have all these problems. So the uh, so the oil prices, the, the gas prices in the US are quite high. There is inflation and there is the midterm elections, midterm elections coming up in November this year, right? Which is very cru crucial for the Republicans and the Democrats both. So the Republican Party, which is currently in power, Mr. Biden is in power apparently. So they were exhorting Saudi Arabia and the OPEC countries to increase oil production so that uh, the oil prices go down in the US and they can hopefully win the midterm elections. And the Saudis have done the exact opposite. OPEC has done the exact opposite, which could possibly make it harder for the Republicans to win the midterm elections this November, right? So that's what's happened. So uh, so by uh, cutting down on oil production, there'll be increase in the oil prices and that's going to help the economies of these nations. So what are the consequences of this? First of all, it's going to help Russia. Uh, so it will be harder for for Europe and uh, essentially for Europe to insist on an oil price cap 
on vis-a-vis -vis trading with Russia because you know if if there is less production then they may be desperate to buy oil from wherever it's available. Uh, so it will become harder for them to impose sanctions and to punish Russia for 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 acting in its own national interest. So that's the consequence on Europe. It's going to uh, it's it's not it's it will the effect will be that it will not the uh, inflation will not be alleviated in the US unless the US does something dramatic, and oil prices will will stay high in the US. Gas prices will stay high, which is going to make the people unhappy because people don't like high gas prices. You know, the gas prices have shot up quite a bit in the US. So that's the deal. So these nations will benefit from that, this. And yeah, Russia will also benefit from this. So uh, it is something that, that helps Saudi Arabia. It helps the OPEC countries. It helps Russia. It is detrimental to Europe. It is detrimental, detrimental to the US. The Americans are not going to be happy, especially with Saudi Arabia, who essentially has always been their, their, their vassal state. Yeah. Saudi Arabia was created by the British. And when the British Empire's power center was transferred from London to Washington, the Americans took over control of Saudi Arabia. And they have essentially uh, uh, treated Saudi Arabia as a client state. And they have forced Saudi Arabia to buy incredible amounts of US weapons. Yeah. And indulge in various conflicts in the region to keep the Middle East on the boil. And uh, Saudi Arabia has been their reliable and perpetual supplier of oil and petroleum products. Now, the Saudis are having, they are trying to act independent. That is dangerous. That's dangerous not for the US, it's dangerous for Saudi Arabia. Right? I, I, I hope Mr. MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, knows what he is doing because, you know, you go against the wishes of the US, especially when you are a vassal state. Who knows what can happen? Remember Iraq? Iraq was a U.S. vassal state. They propped up Saddam Hussein. They turned him into a great guy. They gave him weapons to fight a war against Iran. There was the great, the, the Iran-Iraq war of the 1980s. Both nations suffered a lot. Eventually, there was a ceasefire. Yeah. And then when Mr. Saddam Hussein started acting on his own, you know what happened to him. Right. So uh, uh, I hope Mr. Mohammed bin Salman knows what he is doing. He is going straight uh, head on against the diktats of of his masters, the United States. He's going against the U.S. national interest. So that is a dangerous, dangerous game for Mr. Mohammed bin Salman to play. Uh, so yes, it looks like they're trying to break free at some level from American control over their sovereignty, which is, I well, it's dangerous. Now, what is the effect on India? As oil price, as oil uh, production is reduced, oil prices will go up, which means prices of petroleum products, of petrol, of, of diesel, of, of whatever else is going to rise. These prices will rise in India, which means the prices of all commodities will rise in India. See, yeah, that's that's what India is going to face as well. That's just how it goes. These uh, when, when these things happen, they have a global ripple effect. So it's uh, India should, should be prepared for this, that uh, prices of all essential things, of foodstuffs, of everything essentially will rise to a certain extent in the coming days, weeks, and months. Yeah, that's where we are. This is all part of the big global game of geopolitics we are witnessing. The OPEC nations are trying to go against the will and the wishes of the United States. Mr. Mohammed Sabil Salman is taking a very, very bold step over here. Uh, so what's going on? Does he have some big nations support? We know that India and Saudi Arabia have excellent relations now. Yes, uh, there could be something uh, brewing between the Saudis and the Chinese, the Saudis and the, and the Russians. Russians are clearly benefiting from this. Right now, China seems very quiet, doesn't it? 
the chinese seem to be very sidelined sidelined and they have their own internal matter to deal with the 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 ascension of xi jinping to another five year term yeah his crowning is the you know the confirmation of his crowning as the emperor he disappeared for some time then he reappeared briefly a whole lot is lot is happening right now in the world so yeah so that is what the opec uh, oil production cut is about and that's the kind of ripple effect the kind of consequences it's going to have immediately on the world immediately or in the in the, in the near upcoming future and what it's going to what kind of effect it will have geopolitically for the leadership of the opec countries for saudi arabia and other such nations for mohammed bin salman uh, remains to be seen but it's a dangerous gamble they've taken it's a dangerous game they're playing especially saudi arabia right this is the right this is the the main question actually for today and this is just i've just taken three but i think dozens of people have asked similar questions about this particular matter so this is by paramveer aniket and deepak paramveer says on jaipur dialogues you had said that we could possibly see some conflict between india and the united states what kind of conflict were you talking about some economic stuff or something cold warish aniket says the visa issue two year wait for an appointment in mumbai and delhi 29 days in chennai is that an accident deepak says is america's recent inclinement inclination towards pakistan like the F- pool of the f16 package the us envoy visit- visiting pakistan occupied kashmir and referring to as so called azad kashmir jammu kashmir is it the response uh, response to india not taking any stand against russia despite getting constant pressure from the west from the us yeah so uh this all this happening you want to take uh, an appointment for a visa let's say you're in mumbai it will take you more than 800 days for the appointment date to come you want to take it in delhi similarly more than 800 days in chennai i don't know what it is 29 days i'm really surprised it's 29 days then everybody will go there so in india it's like 800 days like two and a half three years to to get a visa appointment you go to pakistan it's going to take you three days to get a visa appointment you go to beijing it's going to take you three or four days or maybe two days to get a visa appointment in india it's going to take you more than 800 days so it looks like the americans don't want indians to get us visas they are trying to decouple people to people relationships the people to people relationship between indians and americans there is a huge indian presence in the us more than 300 american citizens are of indian origin 300 sorry more than 3 million americans american citizens have indian origin yeah and there's a very large indian diaspora there on visas work visas and all that in the us uh so it looks like now they're trying to decouple india and the us the people to people uh, relationship of indians and americans the americans are trying to do that so that is something to note yeah then we have the fact that the americans haven't had an ambassador in the, in india for more than a years possibly more than 2 years that's unheard of they don't have an ambassador in india mm-hmm. more than a year maybe 2 years the last us ambassador was uh, mr atul keshab who was uh, who is of indian origin after he left there's been no us ambassador imagine that not not having your ambassador in one of the world's major powers one of the world's major nations it's again designed to send a statement of some kind to india and now we are we are witnessing this um, all of these hostile actions against india india doesn't arm any nation that is an explicit enemy of the us india doesn't do anything that explicitly and uh, and clearly is a threat to us national interests in in a military way the americans are arming pakistan they are offering pakistan a half a roughly half billion dollar uh, upgrade package 
for Pakistani F-16 fighter planes, which will be used in a future war against India. So the Americans are, this is a clear hostile action. Then the US ambassador to Pakistan visits Pakistan-occupied Jammu and Kashmir and refers to it as so-called Azad Kashmir. It essentially means that the Americans are supporting Pakistan's claim on this region, right? So they take taking sides. They have reopened the Cold War playbook. They always have been accusing India of having a Cold War mentality, Cold War mindset. Now, what is this? They are doing that. They are doing they are doing precisely what they have been accusing India of doing, right? And India has never taken any such hostile actions against the US. So the Americans are now. If you if you put all these things together, they are now treating India as an adversary nation, right? They don't want any more people-to-people contacts between India and the US. You want to go for a tourist visa, you're not going to get an appointment for, I don't know, more than 800 days. So no more Indians coming to the US. They are issuing uh, travel advisories to their citizens about coming to India, that India could be dangerous to travel to. So, you know, once again, you will not see too many Americans coming to India. Uh, October, November, December, up to February, March, or whatever. It's the tourist season, see, about six months of the year. You know, the cold cold uh, climate when you have in India. That's when most uh, tourists come into India from the US, Western nations, and other parts of the world. So you may not see so many Americans coming to India this time. So we are trying, we, we are witnessing this attempt to decouple and, and, you know, break off relations between India and the US. No diplomacy. They have an embassy and a consulate, yeah. They, they have an embassy and they have consulates, but they don't have an ambassador. So that's very strange. Yeah. So no diplomatic relations at that level, at the level which is appropriate for two major nations. And all these hostile actions against India, uh, all of that, right? So what's happening? So what's happening is very clear. India is acting in its own national interest. India is, India is unwilling to to allow the Americans to dictate India's foreign policy. India is saying we will do whatever is best for us, for our national interest. Does, if it means that we will, we have to buy oil from Russia at discounted prices, we will do that. We will buy 50 times more oil than we were buying earlier because we're getting it at a good price. If it means that we will reopen uh, a trade arrangement with Iran, we'll do it. In the past, India bowed down to US pressure and, and stopped buying oil from Iran, which we were getting at a good price, at a, at a discounted price. India and Iran had a very good relationship vis-a-vis oil oil um, purchases, right? So India stopped buying oil from Iran, which was very detrimental to India's national interest and to India's energy security. And all kinds of such things uh, have been done, right, by the Americans. They India was bowing down to US pressure. India is no longer doing that. And because India has stopped acceding to all these American demands, that's why the Americans are now treating India as, as an adversarial nation, right? And obviously, India acted as a massive pressure valve in, in releasing the pressure of Western sanctions against Russia. That's what allowed Russia to, to stand on its own and not become a complete Chinese vassal state, yeah? So India saved Russia, essentially. India essentially saved Russia, and Mr. Modi essentially saved Mr. Vladimir Putin. Otherwise, Mr. Putin would have become a junior partner to Mr. Xi Jinping, and China would have gone on and, and continued on its trajectory to becoming uh, the next superpower. So that's what India has done. India has completely rebalanced and reshaped the world order to a significant extent. And now America is officially most likely seeing India as an adversarial state, as an enemy state. And now we are beginning to see all these actions that the Americans are taking, uh, are taking which they have never taken uh, before. Uh, unless we're talking about the Cold War. In the Cold War, yeah, they did that. They financed Pakistani terrorism in India for decades. 
Yes, the Americans did that. All the terrorism was being financed by the US. And so many Indians died in that. So now we could possibly see something like that happen again. And maybe that's why they are giving those advisories about terrorism and all that. Uh, but yeah, this is a different India. If Pakistan, if if any terrorism is funneled into India through Pakistan, there's going to be a massive retaliation this time. Yeah, we we don't care about the Pakistani nuclear status. Remember that Brahmos missile that found its way into Pakistan. Yeah, th these are you know. <laughs> some people say it was it was a mistake, and some uh, uh, army officials were court-martialed and and suspended or whatever. It's nice to know that. We, we have to make such statements. Yeah. But you don't send a Brahmos missile into Pakistan by mistake. You simply don't do that. So uh, this is a whole different India. But yes, we are witnessing America now beginning to treat India as an adversarial state. So I said that we could possibly in the future see some kind of conflict between India and the US. What kind of conflict? Conflict exists at multiple levels. You can have economic conflict. You can have... You, you, the Americans are even beginning to impose sanctions, economic sanctions on individual Indian companies on under whatever pretext. So they are now setting the stage for more sanctions in the future. Be prepared for this. Yeah. So now it's begun. They have uh, imposed sanctions on, I think, one or maybe two Indian companies for, for whatever pretext they, they, they cooked up. Yeah. In the future, this could uh, they could escalate this. So there could be economic conflict. They could impose sanctions of some kind. Uh, there could be diplomatic conflict. You know, there could be. Uh, they could use their various their, their entire assortment of vassal states to pressurize India and to take action against India. They have a whole array of vassal states, whether it is NATO, whether it's the European Union, whether it is Australia, New Zealand, the five I five eyes nations, Canada, all that. They also have Turkey and Pakistan. Pakistan will do whatever the Americans say as long as they're paid for it and so on. So, so we are witnessing a polarization of the world order. The, you could either have a bipolar world order. We're not seeing that. We're seeing a multipolar world order right now. Yeah. Uh, India, Iran, and Russia are working together. The Chinese are kind of on the side. They are also to some extent working with, with Russia to some extent. But India and China have a very hostile relationship right now. And we have the entire US-led world order on the other side. We are witnessing multipolarity. France is somewhere in between. They wish they could break free from US control, but they can't entirely break free from US control. The Israelis, once again, are America's proxy state in, in the Middle East. So is Saudi Arabia. A whole mess we are witnessing right now. And one hopes it doesn't lead to something really bad. So we are witnessing the beginning of some kind of conflict between India and the US. In 20 years time, it could be a very polarized conflict. Who knows? Who knows? As India rises, I think now it's going to be the US that, that is more concerned about India's rise than China. Possibly. Yeah. And if China doesn't rise as rapidly as it, it wishes to, which it most likely won't, then even China may need India at some level, in, in, in some way, as a bulwark against uh, Western aggression and neo-imperialism. So we are in the middle of a massive, wide-ranging, global, geopolitical, geostrategic realignment. We are witnessing right now the emergence of a multipolar world order. We have one superpower, which is the US, one failed superpower, which is China. And we have two great powers, India and uh, Russia. We have a couple of medium powers like Iran and France. France is still actually part of NATO and the EU. So it's not entirely 
a major power but yeah that's what we are seeing so in the future it's quite possible there could be conflict between india and the us at multiple levels diplomacy uh sanctions eco- economy who knows what else who knows what else in in 20 years the world is going to be completely different maybe not even 20 years maybe in this decade itself we will see a whole different world order em- emerging so yeah it's it's still like uh, what's going to happen we still don't know and it's it's uh, not advisable to make significant predictions but yes we are witnessing the emerge of uh, emergence of this sort of conflict yeah it's 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 most likely going to get uh, more intense as the days months years go by all right shripad says what's your opinion on on india offering india a 30% stake in a gas field found by india iran together and india has 90 days to respond this gas field was discovered by india by ongc i believe ongc videsh or whatever it's called the company in 2008 2012 maybe 2008 india discovered the indian company discovered this oil field this gas field sorry uh, let's see where it was discovered let's take a look at the map it was discovered in the persian gulf region so let's go towards persia we have the strait of hormuz and then we have the persian gulf so it is uh, somewhere in this region in the middle of the screen somewhere around there that this uh, gas field exists it's called farzad b the farzad b gas field <coughs> and this gas field was offered to india there were negotiations negotiations that went on for years and years and then <coughs> the americans imposed various sanctions on the on the on the iranians <coughs> excuse me just give me a second let me drink a gulp of water all right <clears throat> the americans imposed sanctions on the iranians and they forced india <coughs> to break off all these relations with iran and stop buying in uh, iranian um, petroleum products and crude oil and all that so iran then awarded the contract for the exploration of this gas field to a local company <coughs> now india is uh, india has a whole different geopolitical outlook now we have resumed the uh, north south transport corridor between india and moscow via iran via chabahar also via bandar abbas <coughs> so we are all we are working together again with iran we, we are defying the us diktats and because of that it looks like the iranians are once again open to india uh, exploring and and uh, <coughs> exploiting this gas field so uh, it's offering i don't know what stake it has offered maybe 30% like it's, it's stated here i'm not sure i don't know the details but yeah could be 30% and they have given india th- 90 days to respond which means that you know respond in 90 days otherwise we'll assume that you are not interested in this i think it's it's fair enough <clears throat> and i think india should go ahead with that if the government f- feels that it's going to be good for the national interest so that's what it is and that's where we are uh a a malik Two says temporary nation. Ha ha! How can you guys forgot we have nukes? So I I'm assuming this uh, gentleman or person, whoever it is, a person is from Pakistan, and I do refer to Pakistan as a temporary nation. Yes, I do that because it is one. Like I keep saying, I have nothing against the people of Pakistan. I wish them the best. I don't wish them any harm. But Pakistan is a terrorist nation. It needs to be broken up, uh, and sooner rather than later will be best for the entire world, including its neighbors, India, Iran, and Afghanistan. So yes, I do refer to Pakistan as a temporary nation. I give it about ten years before it it is, uh, you know, uh, before justice is done. 
and uh, justice means uh, the people of balochistan will be able to determine their future the people of sindh will have will have the ability to determine their future without the interference of the of the terrorist regime the pakistan army uh, the people of khyber pakhtunwa and northwest frontier province will be able to uh, uh, you know rejoin pashtunistan afghanistan whatever they want to call it and the people of pakistani punjab will be free of the terrorist uh, army and the people of pakistan occupied jammu and kashmir gilgit baltistan all that will reintegrate their lives with india once again so that's what i call justice and for that we have to balkanize pakistan hopefully peacefully without any any violence so that people can uh, can can prosper so yes so that's what i have said multiple times and this uh, person lady gentleman whoever it is it says that how can you guys forget we have nukes well we haven't forgotten that you have nukes yeah you don't have nukes by the way it's your army who owns you that has nukes um, um, do you remember the ussr had nukes and do you remember what happened to the ussr there you go <laughs> it can be done it can certainly be done now what happens to the nukes i think the americans when they succeeded in disintegrating the ussr made an enormous mistake by not divesting the ussr by extension russia of the nuclear weapons yeah they could not do that and see where they are today so uh, we will learn the lessons of history and we assure you that we will ensure that the nukes are transferred to a safe location all right all right okay samad says why did canada issue uh, canada ministry of external affairs issue an advisory for canadians to re to refrain from visiting uh, gujarat punjab rajasthan assam manipur etc landmines uh, exist in europe and so on look uh, well, let's take a new new look at the news report there was something okay let's just put some news report on the screen and see what happened so the canadians are essentially retaliating to something india did uh there have been all these attacks against indians in canada canada has had a long history of having a very strongly virulently anti india policy right so the canadian government has asked its nationals to avoid traveling to gujarat and so other places the advisory comes a week after india cautioned its citizens justly and wisely from flying to canada citing a sharp increase in incidents of hate crime sectarian violence and anti india activities you know and the canadians have asked their citizens to avoid traveling to areas within 10 kilometers of the border with pakistan in gujarat rajasthan and punjab so the, the canadians are essentially saying that pakistan is a dangerous terrorist nation and you if you are within 10 kilometers of the border then who knows what could happen yeah and uh, all that but it is in response to india's uh, caution to indian citizens from going to canada citing a sharp increase in incidents of hate crime uh, sectarian violence and anti india activities so the canadians have responded to what india has done that's that's the deal that's what's happened right so yeah this is uh, this is standard uh, in diplomacy a nation takes certain action and the other nation feels uh, compelled to respond especially when you have a nation like canada which doesn't have an independent foreign policy canada is essentially a vassal state of the us so um yeah and as as we just discussed the americans are now uh, are treating india as 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 an, as an adversarial nation so yeah we will see more of this happening in the future which is that's what i that's what i expect okay what's the next question the next question is by asmita israel and france have been in support of india in the past at international forums given the recent developments and provocative actions from the us against india what changes are likely in the stance of both these nations 
towards India? Very good question. So yes, now we are seeing, this is the theme of today's discussion, isn't it? The theme of today's uh, session. The uh, change in stance of the US vis-a-vis -vis India. The US is now taking multiple actions in, very, in a variety of ways, which all are hostile actions against India. So they are now changing their policy towards India. They are now regarding, they are now treating India as an adversarial nation. They are treating India like an enemy now. We are seeing that happening. Now, um, like Asmita says, Israel and France have in the past uh, more or less consistently supported India in, in certain matters at international forums. And there has been a lot of cooperation between India and Israel and India and France, especially from the strategic perspective and defense perspective. For instance, uh, India and Israel have developed uh, certain missile systems together. The Barak 8 missile, I believe it's an anti-ship missile and, and, and an anti anti-missile missile. It's a missile defense system and so on. And, and uh, India is buying various uh, Israeli defense products and, uh, and a whole lot of other things. When it comes to India and France, India has acquired five French-designed submarines, the Scorpion submarines, most of which were built in India itself. And there is cooperation in the Indian Ocean region from a geostrategic perspective. We may also, we, we are also acquiring French Rafale aircraft, yes. And uh, there could be some other things also which may be uh, being done right now, which we will not discuss here. So yes, India and France and India and Israel have a very good, positive and mutually beneficial relationship. And it's been that way for a significant amount of time. Now we are witnessing the US changing its policy towards India. It's now treating India as an adversarial nation. It's essentially treating India as an enemy nation. We also know that France and Israel are... Uh, are closely aligned with US foreign policy. France is part of NATO. France is part of the European Union. NATO is a US creation. The top dog in NATO is the US. The EU is once again a, a US creation. The top dog in the EU is the US. The one major power in Europe, in Western Europe, is the US. It's not Germany, it's not France, it's the US. And France is the only nation within NATO or within the EU that has a reasonably, reasonably independent foreign policy. And yet, when it comes to Ukraine and other things, they are forced to support uh, whatever the US says. Now that the US has changed its stance towards India, what's going to happen to the India-France relationship? We don't know. It could go bad. It won't happen overnight. But yes, things could happen. I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't want to speculate as to what will happen. But yeah, we, we have to anticipate such a thing that that possibly could happen. Yeah, when it comes to Israel, Israel, <clears throat> like I said, it's uh, to put it uh, kindly, Israel is a junior partner of the US. You know, the, the greatest support from Israel in world the world over comes from the US. Yeah, uh, the US has ensured that Israel... Um, remains safe and Israel is well supplied with arms, ammunition, all that. Israel obviously is a very uh, entrepreneurial nation, a very enterprising nation. They've ensured that uh, they acquire nuclear weapons on their own, most likely, yes. And uh, they have the Samsung option. They have also developed a whole range of, of defense technology and all, all that. So it's not like they, they, they have been spoon-fed by the Americans. They are a very enterprising people, a very entrepreneurial people, a, a nation that's worthy of a great deal of admiration, right? We, I think many Indians, if not most Indians, admire Israel a great deal. And yet, Israel 
is very much aligned with US foreign policy. So if since the US has completely take change its, its stance towards India, we could witness uh you know a change in the India Israel relationship as well. We already know that India and Israel are on opposing sides in the Azerbaijan Armenia conflict. Israel supports Azerbaijan, India supports Armenia. We are already on opposing sides in that. This is a very recent development. More such developments could happen. I hope that India and Israel will continue to have a warm and good, constructive, mutually beneficial, mutually uh, respectful relationship. But let's see. You know, right now there are too many unknowns at play, too many parameters that we still cannot compute. So the next uh, months, the, the the forthcoming months, and maybe the next couple of years will will bring in a great deal of clarity as to what trajectory the India-Israel relationship is going to take and what trajectory the India-France relationship is going to take. France, no doubt, wishes that it could break free of the yoke of the American yoke that has been placed around its neck. Yeah, but you cannot escape geography. You cannot escape that you're part of Western Europe, which is entirely ruled by the US. So uh, France has to make do with uh, do the best of what uh, whatever the whatever cards the gods have dealt with dealt it. So yeah, it does operate within a, a great deal of within a lot of cons, uh, constraints and all that. Yeah. So yeah, let's see how it goes. But I expect that there will be some kind of changes in the India-France relationship and the India-Israel relationship. I hope that these both these relationships will continue to be uh, friendly and warm and positive and mutually beneficial. That's the hope. But uh, one has to always anticipate trouble when the Americans have changed their stance. So, so I hope things uh, remain good. But let's uh, keep a very close watch on how things go. Okay, Aditya Raj says, how can India overcome the chicken neck problem? What's this chicken neck problem? Let's take a look at the chicken neck problem. So we must obviously go to the map to understand the chicken neck problem. The chicken neck problem refers to the Siliguri Corridor. So for whatever reason, uh, when in 1947, when power was transferred from one set of crooks to another set of crooks, the, uh, the, the recipients of the power transfer, which is the Indian politicians who were beholden to the British, they agreed to uh, to accept this sort of map, this sort of geography, which which uh, you know this very thin strip of land, fifty kilometers wide at at its, at its narrowest, which connects uh, the far east of India to what is called mainland India, and in between you had East Pakistan. Now we did uh, liberate East Pakistan, uh, Bangladesh from East from Pakistan in nineteen seventy one. But we did not change the border. We could have taken some territory and, and made this portion thicker. We could have liberated the Chittagam, Chittagam hill tracts, which are predominantly Buddhist. And, the, you know, they could have been liberated. We did not do those things. We could have even done more because it was under our control. We had conquered the territory. You had the right of conquest. Anyhow, that's what happened. That's what, uh, that's what we have been given by the events of history. So this is the chicken neck problem. The far east of India, all the, the seven uh, states in this region, Arunachal Pradesh, Nagaland, Manipur, Mizoram, Tripura, Meghalaya, uh, Assam, etc., Sikkim, they are connected to the mainland part of India by this very thin corridor, the Siliguri Corridor. And that is what China always keeps eyeing for obvious reasons. So if they were to, you know, 
do a military operation and succeed in cutting this off, you know, in, in capturing this territory, it would immediately cut off the, the far east of India, the so-called northeast of India, from the mainland part of India. And that would be a disaster for India, right? So that is the chicken-neck problem. So what can India do to overcome the chicken-neck problem? The long-term solution to overcoming the chicken-neck problem is to liberate Tibet from illegal and temporary Chinese occupation. Yes, if but that is something that India is not in a position to do anytime soon. Maybe in the next 20 years, maybe in the next 50 years, maybe sooner, who knows? We don't know. Right now, we are not in a position to do that. But that is the long-term solution. That is the, uh, the permanent solution. Liberate Tibet, make Tibet independent again. Uh, liberate it of any Chinese influence. And then the problem goes away because Tibet is a friendly nation, a friendly culture. They are part of the extended Indosphere. And India and Tibet have never had any issue. So if Tibet is free, then the problem goes away. <clears throat> now, right now, Tibet is under Chinese occupation, temporary and illegal Chinese occupation. And the Chinese soldiers are right at the border of Sikkim and Bhutan. They, 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 are, they are also biting into Bhutanese territory. You know, over here, you can see it on the map and uh, so on. And we have Nepal over here. So what is the solution to the chicken neck problem? Since we cannot liberate Ch uh, Tibet right now, uh, one of the solutions is if there is a war, between India and China in this region. And if the Chinese were to hypothetically, they, they won't succeed in doing this, but hypothetically, if they were to make inroads in this region, we could simply use the Bengali territory, the, the, the Bangladeshi territory. You know, so the Indian army could, could simply take over parts of northern Bangladesh and simple that, that uh, will fortify the region, right? In war, everything is allowed. When you are at war, you don't look at diplomatic niceties and the rules of, uh, uh, you know, international relations and all that, if your territory hypothetically is under risk of being overrun, you simply can take over parts of Bangladesh and then use that to uh, to support the rest of the uh, Far East of India. So that's the simple solution. And I'm sure the, our, our good friends in Bangladesh will have no issue against that because we are the same people, same culture, same origins, same everything. Yeah, we will eventually give it back to Bangladesh. I'm sure we will. Yeah. It's just a temporary measure. So uh, I'm sure our Bangladeshi uh, colleagues will be more than happy to, to uh, accommodate uh, this, uh, this kind request. So that is a simple solution. We also have Nepal. So in case, uh, we, we could also leverage some of the Nepalese territory, right? The Tarai region. Uh, there, is a, there is a lot of hilly region, uh, the hilly territory over there. But there is some uh, plains as well, Tarai region over here. So we could maybe uh, leverage some of that temporarily. Yes, I'm sure our Nepalese friends will have no issue with that, since we will obviously be, uh, going, we will obviously uh, return the territory once it is uh, no longer needed. So yeah, we have plenty of options. So we need not worry about this. This is something our our wonderful politicians, including the magnificent Mr. Nehru, should have thought about when they uh, agreed to this, including the great Mr. Gandhi as well. But yeah, this is what what this is, this is the these are the cards that history has dealt us, and we need to have multiple options to uh, take care of any any situation or any contingencies. <clears throat> excuse me. Okay, Alpha Beta says, <clears throat> excuse me, Elon Musk is ready to turn on the internet in Iran. What do you think about this happening somewhere, so something like this happening in different parts of India? Mm, interesting question. So Elon Musk is, has he already done it? I'm not sure if he has. Maybe he has. He did turn on Starlink services in Ukraine and uh, he 
did say, I remember him saying that he would turn on Starlink internet services in Iran as well. So because of various protests and demonstrations and things and unrest in Iran, in some parts of Iran, the authorities would have switched off the internet. So if Elon Musk uh, turns on this, uh, the, the Starlink service, then the people of Iran could uh, be in a position to, to use the internet for free from the satellites that Elon Musk has deployed uh, in orbit around the Earth. So that's how you can use technology for geopolitical purposes. That's how you can use, uh, you know, civilian technology, uh, apparently civilian technology for uh, geopolitical purposes, right? So now Elon Musk is, has become a geopolitical player. He can uh, shape the course of actions in places like Ukraine and in places like Iran. He can uh, undermine the government of Iran if he wants to by doing this. Uh, he, can, he can also undermine the government of Russia if he wants to, if he can, if he can do this. And he, he can do this. So what about India? Let's say, in let's consider a completely hypothetical, completely imaginary, completely fictitious scenario, fictional scenario, hypothetical scenario, in which in some part of India, for some time, there is some kind of unrest. And to restore law and order, the Indian government switches off the internet in that region for, for let's say, a few days. Now, what if Elon Musk decides to turn on Starlink internet over there. He is in a position to do that, isn't he? Well, that would be essentially an act of war against India. So you see, this is the kind of geopolitical uh, leverage space technology gives you. Space technology may look like civilian technology, but it always has a military dimension. That's why it is extremely important for a nation like India to not be left behind in the space race, in the new space race. India needs to develop more powerful rockets. India needs to develop the ability to launch satellites on demand at short notice. Let's say next week I want to launch five military satellites. Do we have the ability to do that? I'm not sure we do. We need to have that ability. We need to have the ability to, demand, to, to launch five satellites, ten satellites, next week, next month, at short notice. Big satellites, not tiny satellites. You know, we need to have that. That is a massive advantage if you have such abilities. So India needs to ensure it's not left behind. India also needs to develop the ability to, to deploy countermeasures against such interference in India's internal affairs. So let's say you have a constellation of satellites. I'm not saying it belongs to, to, to Elon Musk or SpaceX or whatever. But let's say you have a, a, another nation's satellites, a constellation of satellites that is in a position to deploy to broadcast internet services into India, if they so wish, you know, we should be in a position to neutralize such satellites through electronic countermeasures means or kinetic means or whatever means we see fit. We need to have these abilities. And we do have the technology. We do have the minds to do this. ISRO is, 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 is a fantastic organization. You, you fund them properly, they're going to give you 10 times the results they're giving you right now. Right? The only thing that's holding ISRO back is the funding. So yes, this is this is an excellent question that Alpha Beta has asked us. And this is something the Indian government needs to please, please take very seriously. We cannot be left behind in any of these matters. Whether it, is, it comes to space launch technologies, whether it comes to building more powerful rockets, <coughs> excuse me, whether it comes to the moon rays, you know, uh, deploying... Uh, rovers and satellites around the moon, rovers on the moon surface, or ensuring that we have uh, a human presence in Earth's orbit, 
or ensuring that we eventually have a moon base that we that inhabited by human beings by indian citizens on the moon all of this needs to be taken very seriously we cannot afford to be left behind in these things because all space technology has a military dimension and a geopolitical dimension and now this question brings it home very clearly so all space technology can be used in this manner so we, india needs to ensure that whatever uh, the past few years we have kind of taken it very easy when it comes to space you know space uh, exploration we need to catch up and we need to catch up very rapidly i hope uh, things are being planned and i hope we catch up as soon as possible all right that's been a lot of geopolitics because geopolitics is the flavor of these days these times that we are living in but let's take some questions about something else <clears throat> excuse me sorob says many historians say that uh the harappan era was urbanized while the while the vedic culture is rural but many villages were excavated near harappan towns and cities so what about this think about it like this in the united states think about the united states right it's the most uh, most prosperous nation in the world today the most powerful nation in the world today do they not have huge cities like new york city san francisco uh, atlanta uh los angeles and so on and so forth they've got big cities they also have small towns smaller towns they also have villages yes but it's not a rural nation it's not a nation that's considered to be rural it's a very high it's the most uh, advanced nation in the world if you if you keep japan apart for for, for a minute yeah even if you look at japan they have these metropolises like tokyo yeah like hokkaido like kobe uh and so on you know lots of big metropolitan cities they also have small settlements the thing is that even the small settlements small town and villages are technologically advanced and very modern so there is no nation or civilization in the world that can be entirely urban it can be an urbanized civilization which means even the villages are urbanized they're planned like a big city you may have only 100 houses but it's still planned properly and it has got the best technology even though it's a village so it's not like you will not have running water there it's not like you will not have 24 by 7 electricity there it's not like you will not have mobile services there it's not like you will not have internet there you will have all the amenities and all the facilities that a big city has in a small village yeah so even if you live in a small village you're missing out on nothing so that's how it was during the Harup, the so called harappan era the saraswati sindhu phase of indian history it was a completely urbanized civilization uh, a completely urbanized era or period of our history you had massive cities like harappa mohenjodaro rakhigarhi kalimangan and all that you also had small towns you also had villages but they all had the most advanced technology and lifestyle uh, of their time that's what it was when it comes to the vedic culture um i'm not sure if you have identified any vedic era sites because most likely all the sites that we have archaeological sites were inhabited for thousands of years but we know from the text of the rigveda that the society that is described in the rigveda is a pastoral society a rural society there is no mention of big cities of an urban civilization right it's all rural agrarian pastoral so that's why it is very clearly understood that the vedic era of india of indian history the vedic phase of indian history was a rural phase of indian history the population was most likely quite small and you had this huge subcontinent this huge geography and uh, you had various clans that inhabited this uh, 
enormous geography in various parts of the subcontinent and it was mostly a rural phase of Indian history and yet it was quite prosperous but we had no great cities and no urbanization so that is the deal all right Saurabh says again why didn't Indians possess Neanderthal genes as compared to Europeans and Central Asians okay let's take a look at that <clears throat> so uh this uh has not been published yet but uh uh I think it's going to be published soon. The, the, the these uh, these results. I I had a conversation with Dr. Neeraj Rai in in a podcast on this channel. You can look it up. So in that podcast, he did say this, and he has mentioned this in other places as well. That most Indians, <coughs> excuse me, that most Indians do not possess Neanderthal genes. <coughs> excuse me, but East Asians. Uh, I'm not sure. But uh, Europeans and Central Asians have these genes. So what does it mean, and why why is it so? <clears throat> Excuse me, let me just take another sip of water. <clears throat> so it's like this. The, ne the Neanderthals were a distinct subspecies of humans. They were different from Homo sapiens, but quite closely related to Homo sapiens. So we could procreate together. So the Neanderthals seem to have split off from our last common ancestor about 800,000 years before today. <clears throat> and the Neanderthals, uh, their remains are found across Europe. And and uh, their, their remains are found up to uh, up to the Middle East region, but not east of that. So it looks like, for whatever reason, the Neanderthals inhabited Europe and up to the Middle East, but they do not seem to have been present further east from there. So there are no Neanderthal remains that are found in Iran or the Indian subcontinent, whether it is Afghanistan, Pakistan, or wherever else, and no Neanderthal remains anywhere in Eastern Asia. <clears throat> now. We know most likely what route our ancestors who came out of Africa about 80,000 years ago, what route they took. They most likely crossed over from Africa into Asia in this region, the Bab al-Mandeb Strait between present-day Djibouti and present-day Yemen. And Arabia was mostly a desert, but the coastal regions were green. You had some forest or some vegetation there. So they traveled along the coastal regions and then they once again most likely crossed over from the Strait of Hormuz, right, into mainland Asia. So they crossed over into Iran, and most likely the western part was desert, but the eastern part was forested. So they kept traveling eastwards, and then they entered the main the main part of the Indian subcontinent, which, which was entirely green. The Indian subcontinent is filled with river valleys, very fertile land, very good for sustaining any amount of population. So that's where our out-of-Africa ancestors finally settled down for the first time. This was the first permanent settlement. They stopped migrating for a time after this. So uh, the Indian subcontinent is the out-of-Africa founder's zone. And afterwards, eventually, the people who settled down here migrated in all kinds of different directions, and that's how they populated the rest of the world from the Indian subcontinent. So when our ancestors traveled out of Africa and came eastwards, they most likely did not encounter any Neanderthals because the Neanderthals did not live east of the Middle East region. They only lived to the west of that. But eventually, out of the... Once our ancestors settled in India, eventually they, they went into Eastern Asia and also into Europe. And that's when... And that's where they encountered Neanderthals. And that's where they procreated with them. And that's how European people... They have between 2 to 4 to 6 percent, maybe 8 percent Neanderthal ancestry, more, more likely 2 to 4 percent. But Eastern Asian people and most Indians don't have that. So that's how, that's how it happened to be.
All right. All right. Let's take another question. This is by Cherry Berry. Namaskar, Cherry Berry Ji. I, uh, so I am from Bangladesh. Nice to meet you, sir or ma'am. Uh, I watch your videos regularly. Thank you. Uh, yeah. So the question is, how was our present-day Bangladesh during the Mahabharat Ramayan era? Was our country known as Angadesh or something else during the ancient times? <clears throat> uh, so the entire Bengal region, not just Bangladesh, but the whole of Bengal, because Bangladesh is one part of the overall Bengal region. So this entire region was known as Angadesh during the Mahabharat era and most likely uh, possibly before that. But during the Mahabharat era, it was known as Angadesh. Uh, Karna was made the king of our Angadesh, right? So it was known as Angadesh, not just Bangladesh, but also the region now known as West Bengal. So later, Anga became Vanga. It was known as Vangadesh later. And then Vanga became Banga. It became Bangladesh or Bangladesh or whatever, right? So that's how the name Bangladesh and Bangal or whatever else comes from. It comes from Anga. Uh, and Anga was most likely one of the great Mahajanapadas, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. It was definitely a Janapada for sure. And the, one of the ancient kings of this region was elected democratically after a period of Matsyanyai or, or chaos for a century or so. So, you know, you have uh, this interesting example of Indian democracy at work in ancient Vanga history. So yeah, that's the deal. So it was known as Angadesh initially. Then it came, became known as, as, as uh, Vangadesh, then Bangadesh. At some point in time, it was known as Gouda also, Gouda and so on. So it's, it's had different names. Okay, Surya Shekhar Panda says, it seems that Buddhism being the only missionary, in, in, being the only Indian missionary dharma, immensely projected India's soft power by increasing India's cultural, ideological, intellectual, etc., 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 influences throughout Asia <coughs> during the Buddhist era. Your views. Also, how can India, which hardly has any original philosophical influence left, not only at global scale, but also over its own people at the present time, regain it? Okay, so uh, Buddhism is the only Indian missionary dharma. I don't entirely agree with that. Uh, both the dharma is one of the flavors of Indian dharma, obviously, of Hindu dharma or whatever you want to call it, of dharma itself. Now, um, let's take the example of uh, someone like Kumara Jiva. Kumara Jiva was a great scholar, a great philosopher who traveled to China. He is, his his uh, father was from northern India, Kashmir most likely. His mother was a Saka princess, Scythian princess, I believe, uh, from Khotan or somewhere. Let's let's take a look at... Uh, can I pull this up? There is a wonderful art article by Dr. Subhash Kak about this. Kumara Jiva in the middle way in China. Let's put that on the screen and let's take a look at that. So Kumara Jiva was not simply a Buddhist scholar, a Bodhda scholar. He was also a Vedic scholar. So today the historians portray the transmission of Indian culture eastwards into China and Japan and other places as only Buddhism. It was not only Buddhism. So this is an article by Dr. Subhash Kak, who, who has uh, appeared on this channel at least a couple of times. Kumara Jiva in the middle way in China. Uh, so uh, this is about uh, the Vedic tradition in Central Asia, in China. There are lots of representations of Shiva, Maheshwara, Uma, Krishna, Ganesh, all those deities, etc. So that's not just uh, Bodh Dharma, it's, uh, it's, it's the Vedic Dharma, right? Now, when it comes to uh, Kumara Jiva, let's see what it's... Uh, his father was from Kashmir, right? And uh, his his mother was from Kucha, on the northern rim of the Tarim Basin. That's in present-day so-called... Uh, 
temporarily Chinese occupied Xinjiang. So his mother was from that region, but she obviously would have had some Indian ancestry as well. And his father was from Kashmir. Uh, so, uh, so Kumaraji was studied a variety of things. He studied Buddhist texts of the Sarvastivada school. He also learned the Vedas, the Darshanas, Ayurveda, astronomy, and other sciences. And these scholars who went to China would typically transmit all of this. But today it is all categorized under the umbrella of Buddhism by modern historians. Look at Japanese culture. The Japanese culture is a beautiful syn- uh, syncretic culture which combines Indian Dharmic uh, Indian Dharmic culture and the uh, Japanese traditional indigenous Shinto belief system, <clears throat> Shinto culture. And that's what Japanese culture is. Today, the Indian component is called Buddhism. But if you look at Japanese deities, the deities that are worshipped, you have Benjaiten, who is Saraswati, goddess Saraswati. You, you have Kangiten, who is who is Lord Ganesh, God, the god Ganesh. And you have the entire Indian Vedic pantheon represented in Japanese so-called Buddhism. So it's not just Buddhism. It's, it's just the entirety of Dharma. You look at uh, Thailand. Thailand is categorized as a Buddhist nation. They worship Kali there. They worship Ganesh there. They worship Shiva there. They worship uh, all the various Indian gods there. I can show you evidence next time if you want, right? I can pull up various Instagram accounts of Thai people celebrating Durga Puja, celebrating Navratri, celebrating uh, Ganesh Utsav. So it was Indian culture. It was Dharma that was proje- that was uh, propagated throughout Asia, not just Buddhism. But today, today's historians want to categorize categorize all that as Buddhism, which is inaccurate and deceptive. All right. Uh, so yeah, th- so that's what happened. So so that's my view about this. But it, this was done. The transmission and propagation of Indian culture throughout Asia and uh, and westwards also was done primarily under two great empires. The Mauryan Empire firstly, and then the Kushan Empire. The the main, uh, the person who did it the most during the Mauryan era was the great emperor Ashok, who transmitted mainly both the Dharma to various parts of the world. So he sent uh, scholars, Dharma gurus, etc. to Greece, to, to Egypt, to the Western world. He sent uh, su- such people uh, to, to Central Asia, to Bahalik, etc., to Cambodge. He sent uh, Dharma Gurus to Sri Lanka. He sent Dharma Gurus to Suranabhumi, which is uh, Southeast Asia, Thailand, Burma, all that. You know, all, the entire region. Then you had the great Emperor Kanishka, one of the greatest emperors of all time in India. And he is exclusively focused mainly eastwards, China. So with every single... So he he uh, did a massive amount of trade with China and every single trade delegation he would send to China with that trade delegation, he would send Dharma gurus, you know, scholars. And, and if you look at Kanishka's coinage, if you look at the entire coinage of Kanishka, you know, they portray Kanishka as a Buddhist emperor. If you see his coinage, less than 5% of the coins have Buddhist symbolism on them, like the God Buddha, like Lord Buddha or whatever. The other coins have a variety of divinities mostly Hindu divinities, and yet they call him a Buddhist emperor. So, you know, our historians have been trying to deceive us. Uh, so, people like Kumaraji were very adept. They were scholars in, in uh, Vedic uh, culture as well, right? The Vedas and Darshanas and whatnot. So, it's it's this culture that was spread, spread uh, worldwide. And it was done in two different periods, one during the, mainly during two, two, two different periods, once during the Mauryan period and secondly during the Kushan period. So it happened both times when India was politically 
unified under a very powerful empire and emperor so today india is recovering from a millennium of humiliation a millennium of foreign occupation and and brutality india is still deeply mentally colonized and that's why we have very little philosophical influence not only on the global scale but even within our own uh, people right even our own people you you see what's happening in indian society today we are very deeply influenced by foreign culture foreign values foreign religions and what not yeah so how can india regain it so think back of the times when india was able to influence the whole world what how what was india like at the time the mauryan era and the kushan era both these times india was a superpower the most advanced and most powerful civilization in the world so you achieve that you're going to again influence the world it's as simple as that soft power is merely a secondary byproduct of hard power that's the lesson of history all right let's see something else <clears throat> pushkar rai says have you listened to the song uh, by marian faithful she moved through yeah it's on youtube why does the music sound so similar to indian classical music is there any connection please 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 pick my question this time all right marian faithful uh, let me show you something interesting uh, you're talking about marian faithful um this is a tweet that i put out in 2017 celtic music and celtic themed british folk have a remarkable affinity with indian classical music she moved through the fair by marian faithful and there's a link to a youtube video so i think this is the youtube video you're referring to and then you have the the uh, irish i'm not sure if he's irish but he was certainly british musician davy graham he was the first among the western musicians to realize that there's an ancient connection between indian music and the folk music of ireland and i have tweeted about that later as well let me try and put that up on the screen if it will load twitter sometimes loads <coughs> a little slowly it's loading it's loading so davy graham has a theory that there is a connection between indian music he calls it oriental music and the folk music of ireland and to prove this is going to play for us his own variation of the irish melody she moves through the fair which is something that marian faithful also sang and then you have another folk musician with indian influences john fahey he was american he died he is unfortunately dead he was a wonderful guitar player and he also had lots of pieces that he played that had a lot of indian influence then you had led zeppelin led zeppelin recorded an, an entire album in mumbai in 1972 in collaboration with local musicians that album you you hardly find it anywhere but yeah uh, there are it's i am i'm sure you can find uh, that on youtube and they popularized dad gad guitar scale the guitar tuning for playing indian raga influenced music and obviously you have uh, marian faithful's music as well so there is an alternative guitar tuning called the dad gad tuning the standard tuning is e a d g b e so the dad gad tuning is something that is more conducive to playing indian ragas and also irish celtic music so that's what the that's what led zeppelin did they popularized that uh, tuning it was first i think introduced by davy graham himself himself so why is there this connection why does irish and celtic music uh, sound so familiar to indian classical music obviously there's some ancient connection there is an ancient connection uh, i may have spoken about such connections in the past uh, if you look at irish uh, the the founding story of the irish people the irish mythology the the mother of the irish 
ancient of the ancient Irish mythological people was the goddess called Danu. She was a river goddess, right? And the river goddess Danu appears in the Rig Veda as well. And the Rig Veda clearly comes before any founding of Ireland. So there's the connection, you know. It's an out of Africa. Uh, it's an, sorry, <laughs> it's an out of India migration that happened. God knows how many thousands of years ago. And you have an entire bunch of rivers in Europe that are named after the same god as Danu. You have the Danube, the Don, the Dnieper, the Nyster, the Dunayek, and so, so on and so forth. The Rodanu, which became the Rhone, and so many more. All across Europe. River after river after river, river named after the same ancient Rig Vedic river goddess. So clearly there was a migration of ancient Indian people out of India westwards for whatever reason. Maybe multiple ways of migration, but yeah, one of them were the people who uh, held goddess Danu in the highest regard. And yeah, so it, it all ended up in Ireland. And if you look at the genetics of Ireland, you do find the Indian origin R1A haplogroup in about 2 to 3% of Irish males. But you do find another haplogroup in 86%, I think, of Irish males, which is R1B, the sister haplogroup of R1A. And that haplogroup, what are the origins? It's still kind of uh, not yet proven, but let our geneticists do the research and we will have the answers. All right? All right. Okay, Dash Plays says, how can one nation avoid good times and weak people? So what's the what's the uh, thing? Uh, strong people lead, no. Hard times create strong people. Strong people create a strong nation. A strong nation gives rise to good times. Good times create weak people. And weak people create hard times. And then the cycle continues. <laughs> right. That's the imperial cycle. That's what you find in China. That's what you find in India. You have a period when you have an entire empire under consolidated under, under a single emperor. The Mauryan era, the Kushan era, and so on and so forth. You have the Chola era, the Karkota era, and so on. And then you have times in which the nation is fragmented. It is divided into small kingdoms, which is the, you know, the, the uh, good times and weak people and all that. And the past 1000 years happened because we were caught at the wrong time when we were disunited. So how can a nation avoid such a situation? Good times creating weak people. Look at the US. Look at the US. Does that look like a healthy society to you? Do they... What are the what are the values they are espousing right now? Are they espousing greatness? Are they ex espousing excellence? No, they are espousing mediocrity. That's what they are promoting today. That's what you are witnessing in American society today. So good times and weak people. That's what you are seeing right now in front of your eyes. That's that's the way the U.S. is going for whatever reason, right? So how can a nation avoid that? The answer is very simple: meritocracy. Meritocracy. Give um, what it means is that you you um, it's the pursuit of excellence. You have to respect the fact and you have to recognize the fact that everybody is not equal. You have to give everybody the same rights, but you can't ensure the equality of outcome. You give everybody the equality of opportunity and you give everybody the same rights. But you cannot guarantee equal outcomes. Some people will outperform the others. And you have to reward those who outperform the others. So that is meritocracy. That's why we have examinations. 
and only one person can be the first ranker not everyone can be given first rank that's why we have sporting competitions that's why we have the football world cup we're not going to give the crown to every single nation that participates only one is the winner that's why we have the, the cricket world cup right the world is by nature unequal a rabbit is not equal to a lion a crocodile is not equal to a deer and so on and so forth and even in humans some people are more intelligent some people are born more intelligent some people are born more athletic some people are born taller and so on and so forth so on and so forth you have to reward those who perform well you have to reward excellence and if some people are for whatever reason not able to do well you have to ensure that they 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 are still given dignity and equal rights as everybody else you know so that's the the hallmark of a good society but if you reward excellence and if you promote meritocracy then it is hard for such a nation to have the situation of good times and weak people if you're rewarding excellence then you are rewarding strong people the the ones who make the nation stronger we you don't do that at the expense of those who are unable to be that strong you also give them dignity and equal rights but you reward those who do well <clears throat> so, and, and and eventually every empire crumbles because of this problem because they become too smug they think that they are, they are they are the best and they become over indulgent and that's what gives rise to weakness and at some point in time there is a disintegration of meritocracy and there is there is nepotism and all that that comes in and that's the problem yeah so if you have the right system in place then you can go, keep going on indefinitely as long as you don't you know tamper with the system the right system <clears throat> and sometimes whether you like it or not wars are good for a nation for keeping a nation strong sometimes it's like that i I'm not a fan of war. I am not saying we should have wars. But if you look at the past 10,000 years of human history, it's a history of warfare. That's just what it is. Sometimes sometimes whether you like it or not, wars strengthen uh, strengthen a nation and a people, you know? That's how it is. So that's just what history tells us. So that's how a nation can avoid the trap of having too many too much good times and to people who, are, who which gives rise to to weak people, right? All right I think we will stop with the questions here I have I have more questions but I'm I I'm I'm going to take some questions now from the live chat We're going to take a few questions from the live chat Good god Che Guevara who claims to be Adolf Hitler <laughs> Well okay was Samudra Gupta India's greatest emperor He was one of India's great emperors for sure But Samudra Gupta was his his entire career as emperor was an extended military campaign and he he unified almost the entirety of india under his dominion and uh, he conquered almost the entirety of uh, southern india in a two pronged approach using the two pronged two pronged approach it was a a campaign through a land campaign with infantry and and cavalry and all that and a simultaneous naval campaign using his navy he had a powerful navy so yeah he was a great emperor he unified india and he was also very good for the people you know the, the people prospered during his reign even though he conquered lots of territories and unified the nation there was no burden on the people the people prospered even more and it was a period of great uh, cultural and economic and prosperity and flowering so yeah he was one of our greatest emperors one would also have to say that chandragupta maurya was one of our greatest emperors so was samudragupta's father chandragupta the 1st and kanishka and rajaraj and rajendra chola 
and uh, to some extent even lalita ditya muktapida and so on so forth so we had lots of great emperors india's history is so so vast and so ancient that it is impossible to say that one single individual was the greatest of all time i mean how can you forget lord ram and lord krishna as well lord krishna was not an, not an emperor but he was one of the greatest and most consequential indians who ever existed and so on and so forth right so yeah okay what else <clears throat> let's see some other questions um um <laughs> uh, Okay, let me address it without addressing it. Karthik says, can you talk about the Chandra- Chandrayaan 2 landing conspiracy theory you were referring to on the Ranveer show? Which controversy? Now, we know that uh, the Chandrayaan 2 uh, mission was a partial success. Uh, we have an orbiter which is still in orbit around the moon. And there was a lander which did not quite land. It, it kind of flipped over at the last instant and it crashed, landed on the moon. It disintegrated. So yeah, that's, that's what happened. Yeah, that's what happened. There's nothing more I can say about it. Okay, um, Rishi says, don't you think that the visa restrictions are a blessing in disguise? These can reduce the problem of brain drain if made more stringent. So yeah, you know, all these problems are opportunities. Proble- a problem is an opportunity in disguise. So yes, if the Americans don't want to give Indians visas, great, thank you very much. Thank you very much. We will now utilize our own brain power for our own benefit. But for that, the government needs to ensure that those Indians who want to go to the US and who are not able to go there, they should be uh, given what they deserve in India, they are looking for opportunities, and India is unable to give them the opportunities and the and, and the and the quality of life that they wish to have and maybe they deserve to have. So India needs to ensure it rapidly transforms its its internal structure and it starts giving really good world class opportunities to world class people. Otherwise, we'll keep losing them elsewhere. Yeah. So yes, it is a blessing in disguise. It's a great opportunity for India to leverage this situation for its for the benefit long term benefit of the indian people and indian civilization so yes it is indeed an opportunity not yet a blessing in disguise but certainly an opportunity to convert the situation into a blessing yeah all right let's take maybe one or two questions um Vannos says, will you be coming live next weekend unfortunately i will not be coming live next weekend i am once again traveling this uh, this forthcoming weekend uh, I will ensure that I'll I keep releasing short clips all the uh, every single day, so hopefully that will tide over the deficit. But yeah, next weekend I will not be able to come live. Yeah, so that's advance notice of that, and apologies in advance. It's um, unavoidable travel. I I don't want to ever miss a live stream, but yeah, this time is going to happen. So apologies for that in advance. Uh <clears throat> Uh, what else do we have? What else do we have? Any other questions that I have not taken before? All right. Sneha says, nowadays everyone is talking about a US recession. How will it affect the IT sector? Um, interesting question. I'm not really sure right now how it will affect the IT sector. When it comes to Indian IT companies, they exist to provide services to American companies and to, uh, to American businesses, right? Uh, you write code and you develop projects and you maintain software and stuff for mainly for American companies, yes. And if there is a recession, there may be a a dip in demand for various services. Let's say you, let's say 
you're talking about credit cards and gift cards and all that. A gift card is a card that contains a certain amount of value, maybe $100 that you give as a gift to somebody, and then they can use that card to buy anything they want. That's a gift card. Now, if there is a recession, there may be a dip in the sales of gift cards. So that may affect uh, the IT sector. In So that's just one example in one, one example of how it could affect American businesses that could end up in turn affecting the Indian IT sector that essentially exists to serve the US businesses. So yeah, there could certainly be some kind of uh, effect on the IT sector, we, especially when it comes to the Indian companies. That that certainly could happen. Yeah. All right. Um, let's just uh, take one more question. One more question. Why are you always high? Well, do you have you seen how tall I am? So that could be the reason. Yeah. Okay, let's take a serious question. <laughs> let's take a serious question, maybe. Um, let's see. Um, Shaheen says, do you know about Robze Khushnudan, an Iranian traitor who is the subject of various hypotheses? Uh, I've, I've never heard of this person. No, very interesting. I've never heard of him. I will certainly look into that. Robze, is it a girl? It's a, is it, is it, was it a lady? Not sure. Okay, I will certainly check it out for sure. Yeah, so that's something I was not aware of. Uh, okay, let's see one more question if we have something relevant. Relevant. Uh, Manav Harish says, what's your opinion on the future of Indian leadership? I think the future seems to be quite bright. Yeah, the future of Indian leadership seems to be quite bright. One of the... Uh, one of the characteristics of a really good leader is that he or she ensures that there is a pipeline of more leadership. There are more leaders who are ready to replace him or her whenever he or she needs to step down. So a top-class leader creates more leaders who will eventually act as replacements. And I think we are seeing that right now in the Indian leadership uh, context. So I think the future of Indian leadership is bright. All right. With that, we come to the end of today's live stream. Thank you very much, my good friends, my dear friends, my dear viewers. Thank you so much for being on this live stream and for your viewership and for your support in whatever way. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And I will see you in the next live stream. Until then, take care and bye-bye. Uh,